Hello and welcome to the Lies League Den of Vice, also known as the Phoenix, where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody sins. For tonight our theme is Vice and Virtue. And we do seem to have rather come down on the vice side of that equation. Now you might be looking around and thinking that this is maybe a bit tame to be a den of vice. But that does depend on whose definition of sin you're going with. Certain Islamic teachings warn against intoxicants, obscenity, entertainments, and to capital class lying as the root of all sin. Whereas the Buddhists list 108 different vices, and can you really claim to be free of them all? I can't. Though this does allow those of you in the know to play vice bingo with tonight's five stories. We'll have Three of those stories of depravity in the first half, followed by a short break before we return with the infamous Lies League book quiz, and two final tales of extreme wickedness. One vice that religious texts tend to ignore is the modern-day addiction to electronic devices. Dante would, I suspect, have to invent a tenth circle of hell for such people, partly because the other nine are pretty crowded already, but also because it is beyond cruel to be tormented by flames, demons, and the latest novelty ringtones. So please, turn your phones to silent or to off for the salvation of your souls and of those sat next to you. And so, our first story of the evening will be Seven Ships by Liam Hogan, and will be read by Claren Cronin. Liam rescues cats stuck up trees, is respectful to his elders, and phones his mother every single day. He gives most of his income to the poor, thinks only pure thoughts, and is teetotal. He is also a liar who has been known to dabble in fiction. Claren trained at Drama Studio London. Stage work includes Susan in The Future, Tanya in Paper Thin, and Eva in Tough Luck. Screen credits include Tiz in Corner, Teresa in Making It Mean Something, and The Bill. Claren! Seven Ships by Liam Hogan. Seven ships set sail into the starry skies. The earth was dying. It had been unwell for a while, truth be told, but now the malaise was obvious to even the most blinkered of its inhabitants, and it was deemed terminal. Indeed, there were those who said it was already dead. It just hadn't realised it yet. 
Each attempt to eco-engineer a solution seemed to only make things a thousand times worse. It was as if the Earth itself had given up. With a last, Herculean effort and consuming much that was left to be consumed, seven mighty spacefaring vessels were built with the desperate intent to launch these seven lifeboats towards seven stars around which seven near-Earths had been detected. But what to fill these mighty space arcs with? Only the best would do. The finest wonders and most precious treasures that mankind had accumulated over the millennia. The most stunning art. The greatest literature. The noblest science. And people? These ships, massive though they were, could still only carry a fraction of a fraction of the multitudes that teemed on the Earth's now barren surface. A scant one in a million was all that could be saved. Who was worthy of such honour? Earth was dying at mankind's cruel hand, and it was imperative that only those who would never repeat that mistake were permitted to leave, to start anew. Only the healthiest bodies, the keenest of intellects, the most virtuous of souls could pass the strict tests that were set. Although the tests were open to all, very few got through even the preliminary rounds. Most failed to recognise exactly what was being tested. Sure, there were written papers of knowledge and wisdom, physical tests of strength and agility, of reaction times and stamina, medical tests that scrutinised every part of the body, right down to the DNA. A single blemish, the merest hint of an imperfection, was enough to rule you out. But there was also an interview that you would be asked to wait for. And having been kept waiting for three hours, would you wait for another five? Or, if you passed this test and reached the final stages, would you turn down an offer of a million dollars tax-free simply for letting someone else take your place? Many fell at this final hurdle and left clutching bundles of cash that the administrators of the exhaustive selection process were more than happy to pay out, knowing that they had preserved the moral fortitude of what was destined to become the new and improved human race. Finally, the candidates were ready. Finally, they bid farewell to their not-quite-so-blue-as-it-had-once-been planet. Finally, seven gleaming teardrops rode seven towering columns of flame up out of the poisoned atmosphere before unfurling sails the size of Luxembourg to catch the solar wind and help push the last best chance for mankind towards their distant destinations. They never made it, of course. The SS Chastity was probably the most successful. That ship did indeed reach its intended target of Kepler-186F, though by then there was no one left to slam on the brakes. 
Faster than light travel, along with a carbon-neutral lifestyle and clean water for all, being the stuff of fairy tales. These were generation ships, taking multiple lifetimes to travel the vastness of space. And alas, the crew of the SS Chastity singularly failed to procreate their replacements. Perhaps some future alien race will find their desiccated skeletons and wonder why so many of them have their legs tightly crossed. The SS Charity stopped to help the SS Diligence, whose captain had fallen asleep at the helm after a watch lasting 96 straight hours. Noble though this rescue attempt was, these spaceships did not have enough fuel to change course and stop in this manner, and they certainly did not have enough to start their epic journeys once again. Both ships now float powerless and lifeless out somewhere in the icy waste of the Oort cloud, dancing a slow waltz around each other, occasionally disturbing the frozen comets that are their nearest neighbours. The crew of the SS Temperance starved itself to death. The SS Patience never seemed to find the right moment to unfurl their sails. And the SS Humility was humbled by smacking straight into Pluto, which was mysteriously absent on their star charts, having somehow fallen between the cracks of classification as neither a planet nor a trans-Neptunian body. As for the SS Kindness, we don't talk about the SS Kindness And the earth they left behind? How did it fare? Well, it was still dying. If anything, it was dying all the quicker. When the best that mankind had to offer ascended into the skies, those left behind responded in an unbridled orgy of sex and excessive consumption, thankfully free of anyone to tell them that such behaviour was in any way morally reprehensible. Oh, there were still priests, of course. Lots of them. But if they hadn't managed to secure a berth on one of the seven ships of the truly pious, just what sort of frauds were they to tell you what was right and what was wrong? Food piles that had been expected to last another decade were consumed in week-long contests of gluttony, held in museums emptied of their ancient splendours, or in echoing art galleries, their walls stripped bare. Roaming tribes of the disenchanted, the disaffected, the seriously pissed off, rampaged through the massive complexes where they had been denied their rightful place amongst the stars, wrecking them in blind fury. But most people did nothing. Nothing at all. Just sat and watched the chaos unfold, in glorious 3D HD TV. Oddly enough, it was the reports from the seven ships that slowly changed all of that. As, one by one, they failed, as their beamed status reports meant to give hope, to promise some ethereal future for the race they were supposed to preserve. As these reports became bleaker and bleaker, the wrath and envy that had been felt towards these do-goody departees slowly diminished. 
and when the last and final message dissipated into the solar static, mankind fucked itself up. Sure, their planet was fucked. Sure, the best and brightest among them had left long ago, though look where that had got them. Sure, lots of those left behind were so obese they would have had a heart attack if asked to leave their homes, never mind their planet. But hey, screw that. Can we fix it? Yes, we can. Well, they couldn't fix the Earth, not even by all dying off overnight. But they could still build spaceships. They weren't pretty, far from it. They differed as much from those seven lost ships of virtue as their occupants from the idealised demigods who had been the first to leave the planet. These ships were monstrosities born of necessity and whatever was closest to hand. Once you knew there was nothing to come back to, you could put everything, every bridge, every car, every canary wharf into building as many and as varied spacecraft as you could imagine. And there were lots of people with seriously messed up imaginations. Comes from watching endless reruns of Battlestar Galactica, I shouldn't wonder. Many of these ships never got out of the solar system. Many never even left the ground, except for parts of them, brightly coloured flaming parts screaming through the air. But you can't make an omelette. Well, you haven't been able to make an omelette since the last chicken was smothered in ghost pepper sauce and used in the deciding bout of an extreme hot wings eating contest. So, if you ever wanted to know what came last, the chicken or the egg, it was the chicken. <laughs> Survival is a numbers game. Seven ships was never particularly good odds, not over interstellar distances. But how about 70 ships? How about 700? How about 700,000? Some no bigger than a VW camper van. Some were VW camper vans, though they did have a rather unfortunate tendency to leak air like a sip. When the last craft, constructed from the salvaged shell of the Sydney Opera House, blasted off, it left an earth drained of its oceans, its forests denuded, its mountains replaced by steaming slag heaps. Not a single human remained behind. Well, nobody this story concerns itself with anyway. Of course, many of those 700,000 ships were very poorly equipped. But you'd be surprised how quickly a bit of space piracy sorts the walls from the lands. And the lands? Into the pot they would go. After all, protein is protein. Mankind cheated, stole, murdered, and indeed screwed its way across the universe. Some are still doing that now. Others have settled and perhaps in 10,000 years or so will never, will need once again to flee the burnt embers of their resource-stripped planets. But they'll keep doing it, keep despoiling their homes and seeking new ones, spreading like a virulent disease to every habitable body. And woe betide any sentient species whose path they cross, for this crusade carries with it seven devastating weapons, seven 
evolutionary survival strategies for every conceivable eventuality. Seven terrible vices that make them so undeniably human. Thank you, Clara. The second story of the evening will be Let the Girl Eat by Lawrence Van Den read by Rebecca Young. Lawrence loved storytelling, working as a Parisian guide, so now creates her own fiction. This story was born in Zoe Fairburn's excellent course at City Lit. Other fiction includes tube-inspired flash fiction and an ongoing multi-narrative novel set in Manhattan in the aftermath of 9-11. Rebecca trained at the Guildford School of Acting, originally from Singapore and South Africa. Film credits include Panic, Friday Night Dinner 3, Kiss the Water, and theatre credits include Colony Part 1, Filth, Fried Rice Paradise the Musical, and Juice. Rebecca. Let the Girl Eat by Lawrence Fanunorda. Countdown. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, go! I dive in, grabbing my first hot dog and second. I slip the sausages and push them into my throat, cutting them into chunks with my incisors and grinding them into pulp with my molars. I fold the buns over. Dipping them into water, I flatten them together with my hands and shove them into a wide mouth with a flat palm. I swallow them whole, squeezing my throat muscles to tighten and open my trachea, thrusting the food along like a snake, shredding the bread's soft, decomposing body. I take a gulp of water and on to the next, mechanically. To beat the record, I need to eat seven hot dogs a minute. In front of me is a plate piled high and two cups of water, one for drinking, one for dunking. Pre-moistening food eases it down and starts digestion. I quicken my pace. I rip in. It's a violent assault. Food shoveling is savage. It's like inhaling it. The force sends pieces around me. Lumps float in the swampy cup. My jaw really hurts from all that mincing. Eating 12,000 calories in 10 minutes is a feat. This is not a hobby. It's a sport. I glimpse the clock. Two minutes gone, eight more minutes to go. I'm on track. All's good. I see my trainer, Rocco, <laughs> clapping and roaring my name. He's like a football manager. I know I'm on track when he stops clamoring and starts swearing. It's one of those scorches on Coney Island. Sweat is dripping down my face. That's okay. More moisture. The sun is bouncing off the sand. I can smell the barbecues. Mostly ribs, some fish. When I arrived this morning at Nathan's flagship restaurant in Brooklyn, the crowd was already there, reserving their positions near the stage. 
The digital clock on the wall of fame was counting down the last hours until the, until the contest. I took in every detail, preparing myself mentally. The large polyethylene hot dog, always hanging over the competing table, makes my stomach expand in anticipation. No, babe, that one's not for you. The sponsor's logos and bright colors above the stage were shouting out at me, Bye! Bye! This year, Heinz and Pepto-Bismol are the biggies. I turned away so as not to be spotted. We're all supposed to ride together in the bus of champions. Five minutes. I'm halfway there. I squint at my neighbor, a large black man in a yellow Mr. Greedy t-shirt stretched over a mountain of stomach. A new guy. I am the only female out of a line of ten. I know most of these men from former competitions. George from Hungary. The uh, Japanese consortium. Uh, and there at the end of the table, Afanasi, the Russian guy. I see him squeezing the water out of the bun he just dumped. A puddle of water is spreading around his plate. Mr. Greedy is chipmunking his Cheeks puffed up into two hard balls. It's a 90s trick. Let the water and digestive enzymes melt the food. It's too slow, though. Look at George. He's doing a Carlene pop, jumping up and down to force the food further into his stomach. That works better, but not my thing. I surprise people looking so petite and, and, and small. Where does the food go? You can't see this, but I am all stomach. My heart is the size of a plum. My kidneys are olives. My liver is a chicken nugget. But my stomach is the size of a sailor's duffel bag, and my intestines as long as a fireman's hose. I am very good. I beat men. I'm not the only small gurgitator. Another competitor who is built like a teenager is Tango. Several years ago, he destroyed the record of 20 dogs by eating 50 against two big guys. The competition went from bigger is better to better is better. We now know that large abdominal blubbers restrict the stomach's ability to expand, so you need to stay fit to eat more. For a long time, men thought women were not physically and emotionally strong enough to compete. Then the first woman beat a man. She was German. Everyone knows they love their worst. I'm told they eat them for breakfast. Disgusting. Do you know how stuffing yourself became a tournament? It was an immigrant's game born of an immigrant food. The sausage. The first Frank Verda was sold in Brooklyn by a German butcher in 1880. He put the sausages in a split bun so that his customers would not burn their hands. The competition was invented by coroners arguing about who was most patriotic. 
There is no better way of being American than to eat too much foreign food. <laughs> a Polish immigrant, Nathan Handwerker, who owned a small hot dog stand in Coney Island, extended it to a chain. Nathan's Famous. And made the competition official. I'm an immigrant as well. Well, that's not entirely true. I moved to America at 10 when I was adopted by a good American family who called me Mary. My adoptive mom was infertile, so expectations for me were high. I think they're a bit disappointed. My mom wanted to be me to be a model. With your looks, you could make millions, she said. She put a ton of makeup on my face and told me, your eyes could eat a man whole. <laughs> My first mother would be horrified with what I do today. She was very traditionalist. She strove for righteousness, courtesy, and temperance. Live by the rules. Be the first to show concern and the last to enjoy yourself. She always avoided sensory excess. She thought wastefulness is sin. She liked the quote, Ambition is like hunger. It obeys no law but its appetite. She lectured us constantly about our vices and lack of virtue and the consequences of that, so much so we were petrified we might inadvertently make the wrong choices. Before I left for America, she knelt down in front of me and held me by the shoulders, shaking me slightly. Be careful, daughter. America is the country of vice. My Chinese name is Shomei. When I moved to New York at 18, I changed Mary back to Show. My agent signed me with the IFOCE a year ago, and the name written down was Shomei. So now the referee calls me on stage with this clever tagline, Show me May. When I took my place on the table, some of the locals booed me. One shouted, Hey, May, give me a massage. The girls do the same. Show me, show me, show me your boobs. You'd be disappointed, boys and girls. There isn't much to see. I'm all inside. <laughs> the other day, this woman with five kids shouted that I was eating what was taken out of a kid's mouth. Go back to your country, eat your fucking rats. Lead good American beef to the Americans. I didn't get upset. I know how it feels. Need. My father worked in a factory. My mom in a laundrette. I have five sisters and three brothers. We had to share the little food we had. I never remember eating when I was back home. Eating wasn't important. Surviving was. When I moved here, I discovered food. So now, I eat. Most of the crowd likes me and cheer. There are 40,000 people watching me pig out today. That's without counting all those slouched under their couches watching ESPN sports television. Knowing this feels great. My name means Little Ocean. It's also a medical plant which feeds the heart. You call it wheat. You process it into food which kills the heart. I never eat for pleasure. 
My priority when it comes to food is to make it disappear quickly. I don't taste food anymore. In my country, we say the sense of taste is also a reflection of the heart's energy. If the heart is healthy, you can taste all flavors. We also say the emotion of the heart is joy. When you experience joy honestly, you are feeding your heart. I think I lost the sense of joy. I feel pride, power, sense, sense of belonging, but the innocence that joy requires is gone. I am not feeding my heart. Being on the road competing can be very lonely. To keep me company, I have a plaster statue of Budai, the god of happiness, which was handed down to me from my grandmother. Budai sat in my room when I was a child. He terrified me. He is an obese, bald man wearing a robe which reveals a stomach spilling out like lava. Everything about him disgusted me. His deformed body with folds of skin, his drooping moves with erect coral nipples, and his ears pulled down to his shoulders by weighty earrings. His wide red mouth is always laughing, revealing a straight row of bone-white teeth and a blood-red slug-thick tongue. It made my skin crawl. He carries a large cloth bag over his back that never empties of food. Legend says he travels the country to feed the poor and needy. In pictures, he's surrounded by groups of squealing kids. As a child, I always believed the food in the bag was, in reality, the bodies of these small children. I have really grown to like Badai. Since I've started competing, I feel him by my side, protecting me. I discovered he's not only the god of happiness, but also of contentment. <coughs> contentment. That is such a dirty word in American society. No one is meant to be content. We all have to strive to reach the goal. My stomach's growling, growling, and growing. It has a life of its own. I let it do its thing. It swells up slowly. First a bulge, quickly a bowling ball, then a football. The thin skin keeping it all in could burst at any time. Overeating is a dangerous business. I practice alone, and if I choke, no one can help me. I even risk intoxication by drinking too much water. A competitor was drinking with friends the other day. They challenged him to eat over 40 dogs for a free beer. He can usually eat more, but that day, he'd had three meals and drunk five beers. His stomach burst. He was so drunk and his mouth was so used to chewing that he continued to eat, filling his whole body cavity. Mr. Greedy next to me vomits sausage through his nose. A reversal of fortune or Roman method incident. That's disqualification. Lightweight. He's too tense. I relax my throat and let food drop into my stomach. I'm still only half full. Now the clock shows three minutes to go. My scorekeeper fills 
and flips over my numbered board. 65 hot dogs and I'm still hungry. I eat another seven. 72. The crowd is hysterical. Again, 79. The countdown. 10, 9, 8. I eat three more. 82. 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2 more. 84. 2, 1. Hand down. You have 29 seconds to empty your mouth. But I'm still hungry. I grab another hot dog. 85. The referee tells me to stop. They pull my plate away. I grab five from my neighbors. I continue to eat. My stomach is a beach ball. People are shouting, let her eat, let her eat. I eat for them. I eat for my family, my friends. I eat for all women. I eat for my displaced fellow men. I eat for my country for both my countries. I'd lift my head high to give my food-pregnant stomach more space to grow. They still shout, let her eat! Let the girl eat! The final story of the first half will be My Last Friday Night John Race by David McGrath, read by Silas Hawkins. David has been published in Litro, Open Pen, Weird Lies, and An Earthless Melting Pot. He's won Story Slam, came third in Words with Jam Story competition, and was highly commended in the Manchester Fiction Prize 2013. Silas is continuing the family voiceover tradition. He is the son of Peter Dalek Hawkins and Rosemary Emergency Ward 10 Miller. Favourite voice credits include Somerton Mill, Latin Music USA, and podcasts with the register. For countless voice clips, go to his website. Silas! My Last Friday Night John Race by David McGrath. I would see Roland when I'd tart car the phone boxes down in Westminster and Victoria. It was dominatrix tart cards promising pain and torture to attract the politicians. Running the country required your arse whipped raw while being called a dirty little bitch every now and then. Roland would arrive outside Victoria Station and take exactly 16 steps. If a skirt passed on the 16th step, he would say, Excuse me, would you like to go for a drink with me? If the proposition ignored him, which was always the case, he would turn and walk back the 16 steps to the spot he had started from and ask the next girl, Excuse me, would you like to go for a drink with me? He did that every evening. Back and forth the 16 steps from 6pm to 7pm. Giving himself dog's abuse all the way, calling himself stupid. 
and then reassuring himself that Rennell will show that tomorrow he will meet her. No cunt had ever thought of using him in the Friday night John race but me. Nobody even knew his real name. We just called him Roland because he fit a fruitcake. Roland had been looking for Renell, whoever she was, for years. I figure that amount of pent-up frustration needed to be given an opportunity. He was a long shot, but my Johns over the last few months could not have got any worse. I picked a bunch of crying, whimpering, conscience-ridden, non-starting, limp-dick cheapskates. And I was losing a fortune. I needed to start thinking outside the box. Stink, John, on the other hand, was mayor of the frigging box. Stink was sitting on the owner's couch, admiring his John, who was discussing prices at the bar when we arrived. Stink smirked when he saw Roland. You won't find her here, Roland, Stink said. My name's not Roland, Roland said. <laughs> Quiet, Roland, I said. Go and get yourself a drink over there at the bar. Loosen up. Stink was the most fully functional junkie I had ever known. That guy you did not stealing, see stealing all of your shit, that was Stink. That guy who stood at the entrance to the National Gallery on Trafalgar Square charging Chinese tour groups admission. That was sick. <laughs> His bread and butter was the walk-up brothels in Soho. He waited at their doors and asked the Johns, Just where the hell they thought they was going? Upstairs, the Johns would say. You pay me first, Stink would say, all loud and authoritative. The Johns would hand over the cash and Stink, I tailed it, Minute later, the Johns would come running downstairs saying, Where is he, the bastard? Where is he? You're scraping the barrel, dog, Stink said. Roland here won't even get out of the starting gate. You're forgetting the rules, Stink. Johns were not to be made aware of the race. Now, this rule was made because Stink had recruited several of his Friday night Johns from the live sex shows. These were purebreds, whole class above a John. They did four shows a day, had no performance anxiety, and were financially backed by Stink himself. His winnings were less because he invested their money for them and uh, had to cut them in. But they were winnings nevertheless. Nearly ruined the Friday night John race when we uncovered the scam, but, well, stink was stink. He conceded it was underhand and returned the money to avoid a suspension. Stink's John was typical. Down in London for a business meeting weekend. The ball and strife back home, knowing the score full well. Couple of kids in university draining him dry. Stink had probably scouted him from the streets of Soho, told him where he could find quality girls, that he could show them if he liked, that he was going there anyway. His John 
drank a gin and tonic that stink had more than likely laced with Viagra. <laughs> now, 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 doping your John was frowned upon, but tolerated because it was both a positive and a negative. I mean, sure, it got the John off to a flying start, but after a second or third spin, none this could set in. And they might pull up. A winning John could sometimes go up to eight times in one night without Viagra, whereas sometimes the winning John was a doped-up four-timer. Ah, Viagra was a dice throw. I took a seat on the John owner's couch beside Sting. What's your John's name? I asked. Dirk Diggler, Sting said. You can't call him old Dirk Diggler. <laughs> Dirk Diggler the second, then. <laughs> this is about your fifth Dirk Diggler. Well, Dirk Diggler the sixth, then. Hey, good pen! Came a shout from the door. It was a bit of uh, calming down and stern instruction given by the Russian, the proprietor of the after-party an old-school brute from the first wave of exiled militant Cossacks, an army rank away from owning Chelsea. Guy had war crimes coming out his ears, wore tight, shiny tracksuits that everybody could see his schlong through, and then tried to tie it all together with a buzz cut and a right hand adorned with 50 grand in lumping gold rings. Yeah... Many an unruly John went home to the missus with the imprint of the Russian's right hand on his forehead. Before the last house was closed down, he was rumoured to have strangled an Albanian for stinking up the bog one night. Then chopped the fucker up and flushed him down after it. Frenchy came in accompanied by his John, a young lad of about 25 with big red eyes full of weirdness. John started to dance around the room, pointing his fingers like guns. What is this, gay place? <sighs> That's the ugliest man I've ever seen. Frenchy's John said, pointing at uh, Roland. I need to go, Roland said. She's on the way, Roland, I said. Five minutes, buddy. You, you, you sure she's here? Positive, Roland. Told me herself she'd be here, mate. Pen! I bought Pen! shouted Frenchy's John. <laughs> Frenchy sat down on the couch beside us. All of the way of stocking women, women, I want women, Frenchy said. He said, before he die, I want to fuck 10,000 women. And I said, you are strong, good looking guy. You could. And when the door opened, he shouted, Dad, give me Dan! I could not believe it! Swedish! <laughs> Frenchy was a rickshaw driver, but I'd never seen him actually peddling. He was a lummox of the rickshaw world, unemployable, beer-bellied and chain-smoking. He sat in his own back seat all day down on Windmill Street studying form, and he scribbles in the margins of the racing post. All part of his quest to try and reconfigure the force times distance moved equation. He'd been married, but she left him because he bet away the holiday funds, got second chance, then a third chance, and then 
Better way than mortgage repayments. That country's too dark for most of the year, Stink said, swirling a finger round the side of his head, wanting to mock Frenchies, John, in any way he could. You give him Viagra? I do. The guy in a blood to kill a water buffalo, Frenchie said. Give him a packet of Viagra for free? He done them all! <laughs> Fuck! I said. Oh, and he has a platinum credit card, Frenchie added. Oh, it's over, I said, looking at Roland plucking fluff out of his belly button and tasting it. <laughs> you could make a million pounds with that guy, Frenchie, you bastard, Stink said. And we all sat there on the couch, admiring Frenchie's John who had the potential to be a record-breaker. Yeah, make sure you do get my million pound away from you, stink, you junkhead scoundrel, <laughs> Frenchie said. Yeah, there was bad blood between Stink and Frenchie. Apart from the scam of the sex show performers, Stink had recently stolen Frenchie's rickshaw and was caught down a Waterloo trying to sell it for a score. <laughs> What's your John's name? I asked. His name, the Swedish Stallion, Frenchie said, and waved his hand across the sky like the name was written in lights across it. Okay, gentlemen, said the Russian. <laughs> this record is Roland, Dirk Diggler, and the Swedish Stallion followed him out of the sitting room and upstairs to the first floor starting gate. Stink. Frenchie and I threw our hundred quid entrance fee into the pot and waited. The Russian came back downstairs with the first update. Frenchie, your guy picked three, the Russian said, and handed Frenchie £450, half of the 900 the Swedish stallion had paid for his three girls. Your guy take two, he said to Stink, and handed him 300 Your guy only one, he said to me, and handed me 150 We threw our cash into the pot. Upstairs, Springs in a bed started to squeak. A man groaned like a bear. <laughs> and a headboard slammed over and over again against the wall. The Swedish stallion, yeehawed, from somewhere up there too. And another headboard started to slam. I turned on the telly and left Frenchie and Stink to fight it out. Well, I was out of the starting gate with Roland, but well, there's just no way he was an higher pedigree than the Swedish stallion. Flipped through the channels. At that time of night, they were just channels and channels of lonely girls in lingerie lying on their beds. Looking to chat on the telephone right now. There were late-night poker tournaments and uh, text-betting roulette shows where the drop-dead gorgeous hostess with the big fake tits said winning was just that easy. <laughs> yeah. 
There were God shows too. Televangelists saying that one donation guarantees a place at the right hand of the Father in the kingdom of heaven. The Russian went upstairs after the John's half hour was up to see if they wanted another spin. Came back down, handed Frenchie 300, Stink 150, and me a sour face. Roland was out, and I expected as much. My losing streak was to continue. One girl on the television said that all your desires and fantasies are just one phone call away. (laughs) And then came the scream. A woman's high-pitched, terrified, life-and-death scream. The Russian raced upstairs with his game face on. Someone was about to get their head knocked off. We heard muffled threats. And the quidditch, your sweet Frenchie. Then we heard heavy footsteps and a scuffle through the ceiling. And then something big like a wardrobe smashed onto the floor. There was breaking glass and louder and more terrified screaming. And then a window shattered and the Russian came crashing down through the conservatory. We hopped up off the couch and stood there, looking at the dead Russian. And then there was silence upstairs. And we wondered whether we should just get the fuck out of there. And just as we were about to maybe go up and take a look, Footsteps came slowly walking down the stairs. The sitting room door opened and Roland walked in. Black from head to toe in blood, holding a crime prostitute by her hair in one hand and a Russian's Stanley knife in the other. He looked at the three of us and said, I found her. I actually found her. Gentlemen, this is Renell. Say hello, Renell. I'm not Renell, you crazy fuck. Say hello, Renell! Roland roared, pulling her hair tighter and the knife ever closer to her eye. Hello, she cried. Hello, hello. Easy, Roland, I said. Take it easy, mate. And I looked to the Frenchie and Stink for help with him. For help with the um, situation. Stink just shrugged as he pillaged the dead Russian's right hand. While Frenchie cleared his throat, looked me in the eyes and said... In all seriousness, your John is fucking disqualified! <laughs> Sarah trained at East 15. Theatre work includes All You Ever Needed, A Hard Day's Mum, 26, Mole Flanders, and The Winter's Tale. Film includes Feeling Lucky. More Than Words, and Sex, Love, or Other.
TV includes the real King Herod. Sarah! Kinky Sue by Amy Eddings. Everyone on the estate knows Kinky Sue, from Chicken Shop Taz to the Ermit family. She's lived at Chaucer House since anybody could remember. Though Mike from the pie shop reckons she's his age, because they're in the same maths class at school. She was called something else then, but he couldn't remember what. Annie's not seen soon for four years, not since Mum died, and never on her own. But now, Sue's the only person who can help her. Kinky Sue isn't a slag, exactly. She won't fuck just anyone. But she has a thing for young men, and everyone knows it, especially the lads. Word is, Sue breaks in the boys on the estate when they turn 16. <laughs> if they've not got any off one of the girls yet. Not the Muslim boys, obviously. Well, not officially. But all the rest of them, if they want. The idea of shagging a woman old enough to be their mum, Sue's 35 at least, doesn't seem to bother them. They've all seen American Pie. Plus more online porn than you can shake her. They know what a MILF is, and they're all gagging for it, choking for it like it's oxygen. Sexygen. <laughs> so, if she's the only one who will give them some, they'll go with Sue. The Abelard lads aren't proud. It's sort of a badge of honour to visit her, in fact. You have to bring gifts. A packet of fancy fags, a bottle of Lambrini. <laughs> Not Chardonnay or even Champagne, only Lambrini will do. And the condoms. She might as well demand gold, frankincense and myrrh, considering how hard it is for a scrawny teen to get hold of that lot. Especially when the Morrison's cashiers are told to think 25. <clears throat> but it's all part of the challenge. Aussie Ricks who looked 11 till he was 20, got his sister to steal all stuff from the corner shop where she worked. Cost him 50 quid in the end. But Ozzy said it was worth every penny. Sue's a local legend. Like Mad Pat who wanders barefoot up and down the high street year round. Or the park wanker. But sexier. <laughs> the other thing Sue does... A version of outreach work, you might say. <laughs> it's talk to the girls about sex. From the way they front it on the 21 bus, you'd think they know everything and more. But half of them, the half with no sisters or tight-lipped mums, don't have a clue. There's only so much that school sex ed, the Cosmo website, and word of mouth about Rachel and Maxwell in the cleaning cupboard can teach you. The rest... You have to learn first-hand, or ask someone who knows. And so it's Sue and he turns to when Dex puts her in a dilemma. It's a drizzling Friday evening. The walkway's deserted. The wet grass between the blocks, coarse and limp as dead air. Some lads are kicking a football against the wall by the bins with a ringing twang. A metallic noise Annie feels in her teeth. 
winters in the fading sky. And her short blue Primark dress and down jacket suddenly aren't enough. Her exposed legs are freezing. Mum always said that letting your tits and arse hang out was trashy, but a bit of leg was classy. <laughs> she never asked where Mum got that idea from, and it's too late now. But Annie always follows her mum's advice. It's all she's got left of her. Another thing Annie's mum once said was that Kinky Sue wasn't as bad as she was painted. Annie had replied that nobody thought Sue was bad, just a bit of a slag. And mum gave Annie a look that had scorched paint, like one of those pudding torches on MasterChef. Anyway, Annie has her present wrapped up in a blue and yellow little bag and she's on her way to Sue's. Sue's flat is an art to pick out. It's the end of the walkway on the top floor where the building pushes itself into the resident parking below. Outside Sue's door, the walkway widens to become a little square terrace and in summer, Sue takes full advantage, making a front garden out of it with bright flowers sprawling from mismatched pots, a deck chair, and a mini fridge on an extension lead, <laughs> so she can lie out under the sun with ice-cold Lambrini on hand. <laughs> this year, she even bought AstroTurf to make a little lawn, but got rid when she realised she couldn't lie down because it prickled through her towel. Last year, she got a barbecue on special from Argos. And invited all the neighbours' sons round to try and get it started. <laughs> they say the lad who finally sparked it up got his hot dog grilled. <laughs> but they say a lot of things about Kinky Sue. <laughs> Tonight, a couple of late roses clamber towards the yellow warmth of Sue's kitchen window. Blooms clinching in the low sun. And a higgledy parade of overgrown plants lines the waist-high walls. Annie knows Sue's own because she smells smoke through the open door. Sue smokes sobranis when she can get them, or rather when one of her little boyfriends can, and B&H the rest of the time. The scent knocks Annie right back to the age of 12 and her mum's last summer. Mum always used to smoke B&H. Annie wondered if that's why mum and Sue hung out together, because they were brand buddies and could borrow each other's bags. But it probably had more to do with Sue not minding babysitting when Mum was on shift at the garage. Not minding anything much, in fact. Easy going. That's Sue. Christ! Sue says, looming through the doorway in vermilion Chinese dressing gown. If it's not Sessie's girl, come on in there, or the neighbours will talk. All right? Annie mutters ducking under Sue's fag arm and into the smoky gloom. Inside, it smells of patchouli and ash. Red scarves are draped over the lamps and joysticks smoulder in the corners. There's old-fashioned pictures that remind Annie of stained glass windows all over the walls of sweet-faced women. Saint, she supposes. Some of them have blue robes, dark hair and halos. But most of them wear red. Red Sue's colour. Red lips, red nails, red wine, when the Lambrini runs out. And short, tight dresses, red as a postbox. Any 
shade, dark or bright, will do, but the colour's always red. Sue watches Annie unsettle herself on the corner of a knackered sofa covered with a crimson velvet throw, and her scarlet lips stretch. What can I do for you, darling? Sue asks, skinny arms crossed, ruby nails tapping. Sprite, Coke, tea, cheeky glass of fizz. Annie doesn't have long. Dad'll miss her when he gets home. She's not sure he'd approve of her talking to Kinky Sue. <coughs> Advance, she says. Then on second thought, and a cuppa, please. All right, love, Sue says, half itching a grin. Tea and sympathy it is. It takes half an hour of small talk about Strictly and X Factor before Annie can get it out. Thing is, she mutters into her mug, there's this boy. There's always a boy, says Sue calmly, sipping her little Lambrini. What's his name? Dexter. Like on TV? asks Sue. Yeah, sort of. Not a serial killer though. <laughs> Sue snorts. Far as you know. Annie tells her about Dex. In an American high school, he'd be the jock and the bully rolled into one, with a prom queen on his arm. He's big and built and tall and good-looking. He couldn't give a fuck about exams or anything but sport and whatever boys do when they hang out together after school. Anyway, Dex and Annie got paired up for a biology project and now he's asked her to prom. Sue's expression gets more confused as Annie's story unrolls. I ain't seeing the problem, hun, Sue says eventually. Or did you just want to borrow some condoms? I say borrow, you don't have to give them back. <laughs> she rattles a laugh. Annie stares at her. Look at me, she says. Her voice all strangled like when she told Dex she'd think about it. It's obviously a wind up, isn't it? Why would he want to take me to prom? Can't Sue see Annie's skin? Her hips? Her horrible hair? How could it be anything but a joke? Why wouldn't he love? Says Sue tartly. To me, you're all fucking beautiful. Just none of you realise it. You've got a lovely face. You're not fat. What's the problem? <laughs> Prom's the problem, Annie says. But she can't explain. Sue is too old, too far away. Annie misses her mum like a vital organ. Prom. Bloody hell, sighs Sue. Didn't have him in my day. New way to get teenagers spending £200 on a frock, is it? Yeah, Annie says, staring at a stuffed rebox. Except more than that. Everyone makes such a big deal of it. Like, if you don't go, you'll die. And if you do, you've got to... Like, you owe it to your date. Can't even afford a dress. And even if I went, I wouldn't know... You know, what to do. So you came to me, Sue says. Yeah, says Annie. Just in case it's not a wind-up, you know. Somebody really likes me, I can... Yeah, 
says Sue. I know. And she lifts the bottle and pours Annie a glass of Lambrini. Turns out Sue was married once. She was brought up strict religious. Her mum was Russian Orthodox. Took Sue to church every Sunday till she died suddenly when Sue was 11. Her father wasn't pious so much as controlling. Sue never went unescorted in public until her wedding day. She married at 18 just to get out of the house. But of course, she knew nothing about sex. Didn't know when she fell pregnant. Didn't realise she was miscarrying until too late. If she had, she'd got to hospital in time. No more kids anyway. Her husband hadn't known much about sex either. But he knew he wanted children. So he'd left her, high and dry. I decided to educate myself, she says, and others. Stop anyone else falling into that trap. Sex is a vice, lust is a sin, all that shit. She lifts one of the red chiffon scars from the shelves to show an eye-boggling array of sex toys and porn DVDs. Annie nearly chokes on her fist. If you're gonna do it, Sue shrugs, might as well do it right. <laughs> it's late now. The dirty old sun went down long ago and the wine bubbles are making Annie's head spin. In between sex lessons, Sue tells her stories about her and Annie's mum, Sessie, and her dad too from way back when. Turns out it was Annie's mum who clued Sue up on the sex basics in the first place. So Sue giving Annie the talk is sort of payback. Your mum was Catholic too, Sue tells Annie. She once said that the two women who know the real power of sex are the virgin and the whore. The two Marys. She gestures at the women saints on the wall, staring down in red and blue. I've been both. What do you mean? Annie asks. Lambrini added in giggly. I was Chris and Maria. But after my husband left, I needed a change. Sue's the name I gave myself. I reckon sexy Sue had a ring. But it never caught on. Kinky's what they called me. You can't help what other people say and do, can you? No, says Annie, thinking about Dex. The things she knows now, she bets he'd never dreamed of. Annie reckons... She'll wear siren red to prom. Split skirt, showing some leg. Classy, not trashy. Sue's got a dress she can borrow. And if Annie comes round next Friday, Sue says she'll give her a makeup lesson. Do her hair too. You'll be hot, darling. Don't worry, Sue promised. Red hot. Too hot to touch, says Annie and smiles. Because fuck prom is what she's decided. Fuck prom and the girls who care and the boys who expect and the Instagram group photos and the bank loan dresses and fuck Dex too. Or not. But that's up to her. Thank you, Sarah. Before our final story of the evening, some notices. If you
you enjoyed the infamous Lions League book quiz and are a glutton for such punishment, make sure you're on the Lions Facebook page as from the beginning of December we'll have a daily advent calendar of literary questions and past videos for you. Strictly for fun. The Lions will return on the 9th of December here with our Christmas-themed mistletoe and wine. Do join us. And so, our final story of the evening will be Kitty and Pussy by Anne Newman. We read by Miranda Harrison. Anne earned a PhD in English with a dissertation on Jane Austen and has taught in, at universities in America and Australia. She currently lives in Princeton, New Jersey, and teaches creative writing to adults. She published a dozen literary folktales and adores telling dirty jokes. <laughs> Miranda is an actor and voiceover artist. Recent theatre includes Romeo and Juliet. New writing roles include In a Moment, Autumn Leaves, and free roles for experimental company Lenovo Guignol and numerous rehearsed readings. Voiceover clients include BBC Children in Need and educational audio publishers. Miranda! Once upon a time, a very pretty young girl, with many younger brothers and sisters, suffered the death of her father, a miller. She had always known she must marry, but had found no young man in the neighbourhood to her taste. And now, bitter poverty threatened. Her mother, a resourceful woman, soon remarried, however. The new husband was a local tenant farmer who would now work the mill. But he was also a widower, with many children of his own. The mother suggested to her oldest daughter, Catherine, or Kitty, as she was called, that she seek work as a servant, since the house had become so crowded. Kitty cheerfully agreed. I shall miss my brothers and sisters, said she, but I can often visit if I find a place nearby. And perhaps I can take some company to remind me of my dear home. And so... Accompanied by Pussy, her favourite of all the cats that played and hunted about the mill, Kitty visited the neighbouring farms, seeking work. Domestic service was not needed, however, neither on any farm, nor in the village, nor even in a nearby market town. Either Kitty was too pretty, and the mistress's husband too restless, or the householders didn't like cats, or there wasn't enough work, or there was plenty of work but no money to pay for it. So Kitty resolved to seek her fortune in the capital. She packed some bread and cheese in a knotted cloth, kissed her mother and her younger brothers and sisters goodbye, and set out on the highway with Pussy riding on her shoulder and waving his tail as though to say, we're off to see the world, my mistress and I. Kitty had not been walking long when she was overtaken by a handsome soldier and his dog, hurrying to join their regiment. 
when the soldier saw Kitty's round arms and laughing blue eyes, he decided his regiment was not in so much hurry as all that. He slowed his pace to walk beside her. After conversing for a while, the soldier invited Kitty to lie with him among the bracken because he wanted to show her how soldiers perform the sword exercise. <laughs> Having observed with interest the animals in her mother's farmyard, Kitty was not surprised by what happened next, but instead delighted. Afterwards, she rose up flushed and smiling and smoothed her petticoats. Well, husband, said she, now that I am the wife of a handsome soldier, I suppose I must go with you to the wars and learn the military tactics of advance and retreat. So Kitty and the soldier set off again, and in the next town they came to, he bought her a pretty red shawl to adorn her, her arms. That night they slept again in the bracken by the forest's edge and spent many hours testing their strength in martial exercises. The next morning, Kitty sat on a rock beside the highway, combing her hair while her soldier husband washed himself in a nearby stream. She had not been sitting long when a handsome actor came by, leading a donkey with his costumes and props on its back. The actor wore a fine suit and dressed his hair with perfumed oil. When Kitty saw him, she began to weep. The actor was charmed by Kitty's long black curls and slender waist. Why are you crying, pretty maid? He said. Are you crying because you are so very pretty and yet have no husband? Oh no! I'm not crying because I have no husband. My husband is our handsome soldier. You can see him there, behind the trees. I'm crying to think how he will grieve at leaving a wife behind when he goes into battle. How can he fight for the king when he thinks of me left all alone, perhaps forever? If you leave him now and come with me, said the actor, he may have overcome his grief before the battle starts. Perhaps he may, said Kitty. She picked up her bundle, adjusted her shawl, gathered up Pussy, called the dog, who had grown quite fond of her, and set off to walk beside her new husband. After they had travelled, conversing for a while, the actor invited Kitty to lie beside him in a haystack, because he wanted to show her a little bird he had that could do tricks. Kitty was even less surprised and rather more delighted by what happened next. What the actor lacked in military vigour, he more than made up for in artistry. Afterwards, Kitty rose up flushed and smiling and smoothed her petticoats. Well, husband, said she, 
Now that I am the wife of a fine actor, I suppose I must go on the road with you and become a player myself. So Kitty and the actor set off again with Pussy, the dog and the donkey. The actor taught Kitty how to curtsy like a great lady in a court play. And in the next town they came to, he brought her pretty red shoes to match her shawl. That night, they slept in the stable of an inn and spent the hours rehearsing love scenes of every kind. The next day, after she had acted the queen beside him on a cart in the town's marketplace, Kitty sat on the steps of the pump and watched her new husband performing Dr. Faustus' bargaining with Mephistopheles. A fine merchant on his horse, who had been struck by Kitty's performance, now drew near to observe her charms more closely. When Kitty noticed the tensions, she began to laugh. The merchant was delighted by her cherry lips and pretty teeth. <laughs> Why are you laughing, pretty mistress? He said, are you laughing because it is so droll to have a strolling player for your husband? Oh no, that fine actor is not my husband. He's my father. I'm laughing to think how happy he will be one day when I get the rich husband he is sure my refined manners and delicate features deserve. Oh, if you leave him now and come with me, said the merchant, his great happiness could begin immediately. Indeed it could, said Kitty. She picked up her bundle, slipped her shoes back on, adjusted her shawl, called to Pussy and the dog, and set off beside her new husband, riding on the donkey. They travelled on, conversing with refined good cheer. But the merchant did not invite Kitty to lie beside him until they reached the next town where he bought her a new dress and a golden necklace. Once alone together in the inn's best bedroom, the merchant promised to show Kitty another valuable gift. Kitty was far from surprised but deeply gratified by what happened next. What the merchant lacked in vigour or artistry he more than made up for in substantial assets. Afterwards, Kitty rose up, flushed and smiling, and smoothed her petticoats. Oh, well, husband, said she, now that I am the wife of a fine merchant, I suppose I must travel the world with you and learn to buy and sell. So, the next morning... After a night spending, exchanging a number of valuable presents, she and her merchant husband set off again with Pussy, the dog, the donkey, and the horse. The merchant was travelling to the capital to complete some business, but stopped on the way to collect what was owing on another contract. While Kitty waited for him in the road, sitting prettily side-saddle on the donkey beside the merchant's great saddle horse, a nobleman came driving by in a coach and four. When Kitty saw the, folk, the coach, she began to frown and tap her chin with one finger. The nobleman 
who was delighted by Kitty's smooth, round chin and dainty hands, ordered his coachman to stop. Why are you frowning, pretty maid? he said. Are you frowning that it's so tedious waiting for your, when your father is a man of business? Oh, no, that great merchant is not my father. I am his ward, and I'm frowning to think that my guardian, who has taught me the secrets of buying and selling, expects me somehow to acquire a great house and land and a coach like yours. What asset could I ever hope to exchange for such wealth as he expects? I think I know of one, said the nobleman. If you leave your guardian now and come with me, he will be as proud of your business abilities as he must already be of your assets. I believe he will, said Kitty. She helped the footman tether the horse and donkey behind the coach, called to Pussy and the dog, and climbed in to sit beside her new husband. They travelled on, conversing freely with aristocratic ease. When they reached the capital and the nobleman's grand town house, the nobleman presented Kitty with jewels and a fur-lined cloak before inviting her to join him in his private apartments where he proposed to introduce Kitty to an important member of the family. Kitty was eagerly expectant and as delighted as she could have wished by the introduction. The nobleman lacked neither vigour nor artistry. His assets were substantial and the family member whom he introduced was as long-lived and upstanding as his family was noble and ancient. Afterwards, Kitty rose up flushed and smiling and smoothed her petticoats. Well, husband, said she, now that I am the wife of a great nobleman, I suppose I must visit the court with you and learn to say hello to the king. So, next morning, after a night in which a number of other lengthy and delightful introductions were made, Kitty asked her new husband whether they might set off for court that very day. I will be happy to take you, my dear, said the nobleman, after we are well and truly married by the priest. But I must warn you that the king is old and deaf and nearly blind. His assets may be substantial but he is far from generous with them. Nor is his family so long-lived as mine. Your donkey and the horse are well settled in my stables, and I have grown quite fond of Pussy and the dog. I think you should remain with me, my dear. I have many other introductions I wish to perform. Isn't it odd how things turn out? Kitty said. I always knew I must marry, but found no young man in our neighbourhood to my taste. And yet my mother quickly got a new husband to help her grind her corn. 
I have learned that when a woman has assets or knows how to acquire them, she need not look far to find someone appreciative. And indeed, husband, all the introductions you have made so far have impressed me deeply. And so Kitty and her nobleman lived happily ever after, even when the old king died and was succeeded by his handsome young nephew, who not only possessed military vigour, artistry and substantial assets, but was also rumoured to please ladies greatly with the quickness of his tongue.